Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning and uh, and your worship guide there, a pen if you take notes. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And we're going to be primarily in verses 21 through 26 this morning. As you find your way to Romans 3 verse 21, uh, I would ask you to consider this morning the last time that you knew you had really wronged somebody. Last time you had had really betrayed somebody's trust could be that you failed to uphold a promise to someone that you made. Maybe you said something especially cruel to someone that you love, something you knew that would hurt, something you knew would cut. When we offend those that we love and we recognize that we've hurt them, we recognize we've offended them, that we've sinned against them, very often the first thing we do out of our remorse for having wronged that person we love is to look for a way to make it right, to look for a way to to make up the the, the fault or the, the offense that we have committed. Uh, I had a, my Old Testament professor in seminary before I got married uh, told me that there are three things that I should say any time uh, that I found myself in conflict with my wife. Those three things are this. I'm, you're right. I'm sorry. What can I do to make it up to you? Wiser words have never been spoken, men. But look, anytime we recognize that we wrong somebody, that we sin against someone, we, we look for ways to make it right, right? To, to make up for what we've done. Now I'd ask you to consider not, not the last time, but the many times that you have wronged and offended, not just a human person that you love, but the many times that you've wronged and offended God, who created you in his image and who loves you. As you think on those offenses, as you think on those sins, do you feel sorrow? Do you feel remorse? Are you worried? Are you concerned about the impact that your sin has upon your relationship to God? I think it would certainly be natural for you to want to do something to make that right, to right the wrongs that you have committed to God. Our souls want to be right with God when we recognize that we've sinned against him. But the question is, how? How can we be justified? How can we be right, set right to a perfectly righteous, perfectly just God who not only is sinless, but who knows all of our sins? 500 years ago, as Christians always have, the church was dealing with this very idea. How can sinful people be made right with God? Last week, as we looked at the Reformation conviction of grace alone, that salvation comes, salvation from sin comes only to us as a gift from God. We saw there how in in particularly Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, how the reformers were arguing from Scripture against the common idea that God somehow cooperated with sinners in their salvation. The reformers... And Protestants, like us, over the last 500 years have said, no, we don't contribute to our salvation. We don't cooperate in salvation. It only comes from God, as Scripture says, as a, as a gift of His grace. It is exceedingly good to know that we do not need to contribute to our salvation. It is freeing to know that we don't need to contribute to our salvation. But the question remains, how do we go about making our sins right? How do we go about being justified to God? The reformers, turning again to scripture, said that being made right with God is not through acts uh, uh, acts performed as, as proving our intent of turning from sin. 
It's not through doing sacraments to show God this is how remorseful I am. But rather that being made right with God, being justified to him, is something that we receive. Not that we earn, not that we work for, but that we receive, and that by faith. We began to look at this understanding of of faith alone, receiving justification by faith. Even last week, as we saw in Ephesians 2, 8, where Paul says, By grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. Faith, receiving or being justified by faith, like salvation, is something that is done for us. It's something that's given to us. Being justified with God is something that we embrace through trust in Jesus. And so we have the Reformation conviction in Latin, sola fide, meaning faith alone. This is a conviction that we consider again today. It's a scriptural doctrine that teaches us that sinners are justified to God, not by proving their worth to God, but simply by placing faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who gave his life for sinners. Now to flesh out this doctrine today, I've called our attention to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Now the Apostle Paul is the writer of this letter to the Romans. He wrote it sometime during the mid-50s A.D., about 20 years after uh, Christ was uh, crucified and then had resurrected again uh, to heaven to the right hand of the Father. He's writing this letter to Christians who are in Rome at the time. And the purpose of Paul writing this letter to the church in Rome was to bring together both Jewish and non-Jewish believers in Jesus around the central truth that all people who are saved by Jesus are saved the same way. That is, by grace, through faith. Let's turn our attention to Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. And I'll ask us to stand together this morning uh, in honor of reading God's word. Paul, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God bless the reading of his word. You be seated this morning. So this morning, as we look at God's word and seek to understand this Reformation conviction, sola fide, faith alone, we do well, I think, to consider it in three phases. So first, let us look at the aspect of God's righteousness, God's righteousness. Certainly all of all of what we're looking at today is grounded in, is founded in, centers around being righteous like God is righteous. God's righteousness is the heart of the gospel. It's what's manifested in the gospel. We see that in chapter 3, verse 21, that we just read. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. If you flip back a page in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Paul writes this, In it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is all about revealing God's righteousness. But how would we define God's 
righteousness. Well, I would define it this way. And you have this in your worship guide in your note sheet this morning. The righteousness of God is this. It is the moral perfection of God that he possesses as a matter of his existence. That is, the way God exists is as one who is morally perfect in every way. But simultaneously, God's righteousness, the righteousness of God, is the right standing that he gives to sinners himself, that he himself gives to sinners. His righteousness, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 21, is manifested. It's demonstrated, it's illustrated by God in two different ways. The first way is through the law and through the prophets, Paul says. His righteousness, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What does Paul mean when he's saying the law and the prophets bear witness to God's righteousness? Well, he's referring to all of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible in his day. The New Testament was still under construction at the time as Paul and the other apostles were writing. In the law, that is the first five books of the Old Testament. We know them as Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. We see there that God reveals his righteousness to Israel and as he calls them to be a people that perfectly reflect his holy character. He says to them in Leviticus 19.2, in their instructions for how they, li- how they live, he says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In the prophets, God reveals his righteousness. This, that, that word prophets, Paul uses to refer to the rest of Old Testament scriptures, not just the major and minor prophets, but other things that are written as well. We see God's righteousness manifested. We see it illustrated in the way that he deals with his people throughout the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah, in this vision of the Lord in his throne room, says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you see how Isaiah, in encountering the living God, recognizes his sin and his sinfulness in the face of a perfectly righteous God? In Ezekiel chapter 1, after Ezekiel has a vision of the Lord, similar to Isaiah's, he falls on his face in worship, knowing that he has nothing to answer for or no way to to justify himself to this God that he has seen. In the minor prophets, particularly in Amos and Hosea, we see God pronouncing judgment on his people Israel for their unrighteousness because they're not morally perfect like him. They've chased after other gods. They've neglected and abused the poor and the needy among them. They need to be right with a God who is righteous. Being righteous, being justified to God by faith alone, begins with understanding that God is righteous. He is perfect. It is he who we need to be made right with and not the other way around. We do well, church, at this point to understand and to grasp the total and utter holiness and perfection of God. Let that sink in a minute. To know that that God only and always does good. God never has an impure thought. God has never acted wickedly. He's the only and final standard of moral perfection in the universe and outside of it. God is the only and final just judge of our conduct. And we need to know that. We need to know that he is righteous. We need to know that he is just. Are there any other know-it-alls in the room this morning? I say other because I include myself in that category. I'm the guy at a party who will interrupt a conversation to say, well, actually, (laughs) know-it-alls, have you... 
Have you ever had to admit and to recognize that you didn't know something? Or to admit and to recognize that not, not only that you didn't know something, but that you were wrong about something? Oh, mercy. That is humbling, is it not? To be the guy or the girl in the room that knows everything and to be shown that you are wrong. That is a, a humbling moment. That is a humbling experience. Friends, we all in our sin are know-it-alls about God and about righteousness. We think we've got it all figured out. What we must do is recognize that we, when it comes to perfection, moral perfection, righteousness, we, we don't know it all. But God does. We don't have any righteousness but he does. We need to humble ourselves and recognize that, that God alone is righteous, that he alone is perfect. And in understanding that, then we can, we can begin to think about faith alone, sola fide, this, this aspect, this conviction of the reformation in the, right, in, in the right ways. So we go from looking at God's righteousness to looking at the sinner. That is us, we who have fallen short of the glory of God, and to our justification, the sinner and justification. We saw from last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, right? That we all begin life dead in our sins and our trespasses. Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he affirms that same truth here again in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. A verse that most of us uh, who have been in church for very long probably know by heart. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know this verse well. We use it when we're sharing the gospel with other people. But often I fear that we gloss over the depth of the truth of this verse. Paul says, for all have sinned. All. This verse is speaking about each and every person who has ever lived. It excludes no one. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry that has ever lived is, is, is mentioned in this verse. All have sinned. Not a one of us are excluded from this. All, Paul says, have sinned. This tells us of our condition. All of us have this condition. We each by our own nature have rebelled against. We've even denied God's righteousness. We've sought to define righteousness our own way. Perhaps you've heard, and I've even used this illustration myself, that, that sin is, uh, the, the word for sin in the original language, just, it simply means missing the mark. As though God's glorious standard was the, the bullseye on an archer's target. And our best efforts are, are just merely off-center. But, but still on the target. Why are, sin is, sin is just, just missing the bullseye. But hey, I'm still on the target. That's not what sin is. Sin is not merely missing the mark. Sin is, friends, shooting the other direction. God's righteousness is an impossible target to hit, not because it's so hard to hit, but because we in our sin have denied that the target even exists. We've turned our backs to God. We've turned our focus other directions. We have aimed our lives, our lives in a, a different trajectory. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the result of our sin, that we stand guilty, guilty, before a holy God who judges justly and perfectly. You've been pulled over for speeding and you knew you were speeding. That sense of guilt, that come, knowing that you're going to have to accept the ticket that is coming. Maybe even have to go to court and tell the judge that you were speeding. Admit your guilt. Friends, we are all guilty before God of our sin. And our sin is far more dangerous, far more deadly than a mere speeding ticket. This is the point of what Paul is saying in Romans 3.23, that our great need as sinners is to be right with God. 
our great need as people who have rebelled against God is to have our sins forgiven so that we might not suffer the punishment for our sin that we have rightfully deserved. This is justification. This is what it means to be justified to God, to be declared free of the guilt of sin and set right with our creator. This begs the question, how then can my sins be forgiven? I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I'm guilty before a righteous God. I need my sins to be paid for. How does this happen? How are my sins forgiven? Paul, the apostle, is so awesome because he gives us the answer in verses 24 and 25. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How can my sins be forgiven? You ask Paul's answer. God's words answer to you is this by God's grace as a gift. Salvation is a work of God for sinners who cannot do anything for themselves. If you want to know more about how God's grace works and what that looks like in salvation, just go listen to last week's sermon uh, on the website. You can find it there. We receive forgiveness of sins as a gift of God's grace freely given who, as Paul says, we, we received through, it was given through the redemption in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How are we forgiven? How are we justified with God? Through redemption, through rescue, by being saved from our hopeless, helpless condition. God makes a way for us to be rescued from our sinful state, not in any uh, random way, but in a specific way, by sending his son, Jesus. This rescue, our salvation from sin, from the guilt that we have before a holy God. Justification with him is not merely God turning a blind eye to sin. God doesn't just wink at our sin and say, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. Rather, what we see is that God, who's being just, who, who is in his being just, must, by his nature, punish sin. That's who he is. He's a good judge. He's a just judge. He always judges rightly. In the Old Testament, we see God punishing the sins of Israel vicariously through the sacrifice of animals. He gives them instructions on how to slaughter bulls and goats and lambs and rams for their sins. And in that process, the sins of the people were symbolically transferred to a goat or a bull, whatever it was that they were sacrificing. That animal that they were sacrificing was then slaughtered. All of its blood was spilled. That animal received the punishment of death for the sins that the people had committed. This practice of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament was not done just once, but often, regularly, day by day, month by month, year by year. It was repeated often, regularly. It was never permanent. There was always more sin to have to, be uh, have, have to uh, provide a sacrifice for. Friends, sinners need a better sacrifice. We need something that lasts. We need a sacrifice that is permanent. And so God, in His great wisdom... Not because he made a mistake by giving Israel the, the way to, to sacrifice animals for their sins, but giving them that as a picture of the perfect sacrifice he would send. God sends his own son Jesus to be, as Paul says, a propitiation by his death on the cross for sins. That word propitiation is your $20 theological word for the day. Some of your translations may say atoning sacrifice, but this is what a propitiation is. It is simultaneously satisfaction of God's wrath against sin and a means of wiping away the guilt of the sinful party. 
Jesus is our propitiation in that in his death, he takes the punishment of God's righteous. That is his morally perfect wrath, his anger against sin. And he serves, Jesus serves, as a sacrifice that makes atonement for sinners by taking away our guilt. So not only do we not incur the wrath of God as we trust in Jesus, but also we, don't have, we no longer have guilt for the sins that we've committed. This is the way out for sinners. This is the way of rescue. This is the good news that we've been waiting for. God has made a way for our sin to be dealt with and for his perfect righteousness to be upheld and not neglected or abused or ignored. God places on Jesus at the cross all of the weight of the sin of the world and punishes his own son for our sins. So that there would be a way for us to escape the penalty of our sin and to be right with God again. To be justified. To be declared righteous. This answers the question about the second way God manifests his righteousness. We said earlier in the first point, God manifests his righteousness two different ways. First, uh, in the Old Testament through the law and the prophets. But now, secondly, through Christ. Now, through Jesus, through his perfect and righteous son, dying on the cross for sinners, being raised from the dead, God demonstrates his righteousness and his justice towards sin by sending his perfect and righteous son to pay the penalty for sins that he never committed so that his righteousness, so that Christ's righteousness, his moral perfection, being God in the flesh, his right standing with God that he always has had and always will have would be available for sinners. Paul reminds the Corinthian church of this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake, he made him, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the hope already forming here for the sinner in Romans 3, 21 to 26? That there is a way that your sins can be forgiven. That your guilt for sin can be wiped away because the righteous God who has judged sin and made salvation, pos- and made salvation possible by his righteousness has done it perfectly. Do you see the good news? Do you see the hope that is awaiting you here in Romans chapter 3? In light of God's righteousness, we do, we do well to reflect on the fact that he alone is righteous. But in light of our sinfulness and our need for justification, we do well to think upon and remind ourselves of our great need before a righteous God. We need to be justified to him. It's not just a thing that we want. It's not just a nice thing to have. It is a need. It is the greatest need that you have, that you or I have. We need to be justified to God. We need to have things set right. We also need to see what God has done to make that possible. He's given his own son to make a way for for hopeless, helpless sinners like you and I to be right with him. So you may be asking at this point, okay, God is righteous. I know that I'm a sinner. I need to be justified to him. I need to have things set right. So how then can I have this righteousness? How can I be saved? How do I receive this forgiveness? How am I justified to God? We affirm as the reformers 500 years ago did that all you have to do to be justified by God or justified to God is nothing. Nothing but have faith. Express faith. Faith, And so we look at the final phase of understanding sola fide, and that is the the doctrine in summation that there is justification with God by faith alone, through faith alone. 
Look at what Paul just says in our passage today about faith and our need for faith or, or, or how righteousness comes through faith. In verse 21, he tells us that God's righteousness through, is through faith in Jesus to all who believe. In verse 25, he says, Christ is our vicarious sacrifice. That is our propitiation to be received. How? By faith. Verse 26, we see again from Paul's own hand that God is the just judge and also the justifier of the sinner who has what? Faith in Jesus. But it's not just here in Romans 3, 21 through 26. In Romans 1, 17, which we just saw earlier, we read this from Paul. The righteous shall live by faith. Romans 3, 28, we hold that one is justified by faith. Romans 5, uh, uh, 2, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Consider again Romans 2, 8 last week, where Paul says it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And Galatians 2.16, we could have spent all morning uh, this morning in Galatians, by the way, where Paul uh, uh, further fleshes out this doctrine of justification by faith alone. But in Galatians chapter 2.16, Paul writes this to the church at Galatia. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. All of this, all that Paul is saying in all of his letters is to say that faith is the instrument of receiving God's gift of salvation. Faith is the the means, it's the tool by which we receive God's gift. In exercising faith in the death of Christ for sins and in his resurrection from the dead, we are, Scripture says, justified with God, set right. We are forgiven and now experience right standing with our God and Creator. What does it mean to have faith in Christ? I know that justification comes through faith, but what does that mean? It means that we do not merely agree with the facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We just don't say, yeah, that history, that happened. But that we receive Jesus himself. We embrace him. We cling to him as the one who was righteous in our place. The French reformer who lived out his life in exile in Geneva, Switzerland, John Calvin, says that faith defines faith this way as the true knowledge of Christ, which consists in receiving him as he is offered by the father, namely as invested with his gospel. John Calvin often in his writings talks about the importance of clinging to Christ, holding on to Christ, embracing Christ. Earlier this summer, our oldest two girls, Abby and Ellie, uh, started taking swimming lessons for the first time. And uh, early on in the swimming lesson sort of protocol, they, they started to get pretty brave with their swimming ability. And, uh, even, even, and maybe even overestimate it some. I remember one time we were at the community pool in the neighborhood where we live, and, uh, and Ellie was swimming around. She usually kind of hangs on to the, to the wall, and she might like push off a little bit, but close enough where she can touch her feet to the floor or whatever. But I remember a time where she uh, pushed off of the wall and got to a space where, where the pool was too deep and her feet couldn't touch. And she's being only four years old, doesn't really know how to tread water. And so she starts splashing and thrashing around. And, and I see her quickly enough, although it feels like an eternity, get to her and pick her up out of the water. And what's the first thing that she does? She wraps her arms around my neck, puts me in a chokehold like she's never going to let go, right? This is, that's the picture of the kind of faith, the embrace of Christ that Scripture is talking about by which we are justified to God. When we have no hope of life, Christ rescues us and we cling to him for all we have. 
knowing that apart from him, we, we, we drown, we're dead, we're, 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 we stand condemned in our sin. When we do this, when we cling to Jesus this way, Scripture says a divine, a heavenly declaration is made. Not a declaration by us, but a declaration by God. When we embrace Christ as the one who justifies us to God, we are then united to Jesus and to his righteousness. His righteousness is then, as as theologians say, is imputed to us. That means it is credited to our account by God's own decree. Not because we've earned it, but because God says so. Scripture tells us that this is how justification has always worked. Justification with God, having the righteousness of God imputed, credited to us by our faith in him and in his promises, how God has always worked. Paul refers in Romans 4, just the chapter over from where we are now, to Abraham, the father of the Jews, reminding the Romans that Abraham was justified by faith as well and not through keeping the law. Romans 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes this, what should we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here, Paul citing uh, the words of Genesis chapter 15. When God promised Abraham that, that Abraham would be the father of many nations and that through him the world would be blessed, Abraham did not respond by doing stuff to prove his worthiness to God. Rather, Abraham responds by trusting in the promise and particularly in God's power and his faithfulness to fulfill the promise that he's given to Abraham. That promise to be the father of many nations, to bless all the peoples of the world through his offspring is fulfilled in Jesus, who is the greatest blessing that any one person can know, who died for the sins of all, for the sins of all people from all nations, and in so doing, extends the blessing that God promised to Abraham to the world. When Abraham trusted God, God looked on Abraham's embrace of God's promise and declared, Abraham, you are righteous. Friends, Abraham was no one. Abraham had nothing. Nothing to offer God. Nothing to show for his own merit, for his own worth. But on the basis of his faith, his trust in God's promise, he was counted justified. This is the miracle that God does through our faith. That when we believe in Jesus, God declares, he says, on the basis of our embrace of Christ as righteous Savior, that we are righteous, even though we have no righteousness of our own. Just as Jesus is the center of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone that we saw last week, so also is he at the center of this beautiful doctrine of justification by faith alone. Christ alone is righteous. Faith in him alone is what uh, credits righteousness to us in God's eyes. Trusting Jesus, though, doesn't make us immediately morally perfect like he was. God declares that we're just. God declares that there's nothing else that needs to be done to to atone for our sin. But at the same time, we're not perfectly righteous. We still, even as believers, even as, as faithful followers of Jesus, we still sin daily. Martin Luther said in Latin, expressing this, uh, this, this mystery, this, this thing that, that tends to confound some people, that we can be justified to God and, and, and yet also still walk in sin. In Latin, he said, simul justus et peccator. I don't know Latin, so I looked up a translation. That means simultaneously, at the same time, just and sinner. 
We are at the same time in trusting Jesus. We're still sinners. We still struggle with sin. We still walk in sin. But because of our embrace of Jesus, God has declared us just. In his day, the Catholic officials, Catholic clergy in the church, inherently pushed back against this doctrine that Martin Luther and many of the other, uh, many of the other uh, reformers were, uh, were teaching, that justification comes by faith alone. The, the Catholic officials in the day pushed back against this doctrine that sinners can be justified to God freely by God's grace received by faith because they had held for quite some time that justification, being made right with God, was a process and not an event. The process of justification for the Catholic in Luther's day, and even now, the the same doctrine holds true, included faith. Faith was part of justification for the Roman church, but it also required good deeds of love and charity. So you don't just trust Jesus, but you trust Jesus and you do these good works. And then over time, you are being justified. You are being made righteous. But the doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith alone, was, uh, uh, was at the time was reprehensible to the Roman Church. The thought was that people could the, the thought that, that people can simply trust Jesus and have their sins forgiven, and then and then they could potentially live however they want, thus uh, shaming or or bringing uh, neglect or abuse upon God's grace. They were afraid that people would just trust Jesus, and then they'd go on living in licentiousness and lawlessness. But leaning on the scripture that we've read today, the reformers came back to this and said, "No, no, 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 no." Faith that saves is not faith that that happens one time and then you never go back to it again. Faith that saves is a a faith that transforms the way that you think about the world, the way you live in the world. Returning to our, our friend and reformer, John Calvin, he responded to the Roman church this way. He said, as often as we mention faith alone, we are not thinking of a dead faith, which worketh not by love, but holding faith to be the only cause of justification. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, Calvin says, and yet the, fa- and yet the faith which, ju- which justifies is not alone. Faith alone justifies, but not, by, not faith that is alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone, because it is constantly conjoined with light. So faith... And good works, godly works, Christ-like living go hand in hand. Faith that saves results in Christ-like living. Now, the Reformation was not confined to France and Switzerland and and to Germany, but even made its way uh, further north to the British Empire, to England. And there was, uh, shortly after Henry VIII died, a queen who made her way to the throne, and she was only queen for nine days. Her name is Lady Jane Grey. Lady Jane Grey, the nine days queen, was imprisoned by Mary, the Queen of Scots, better known as Bloody Mary. Lady Jane Grey was imprisoned because she was an Anglican. She was uh, protesting against the, the, the Catholic imposition upon the church in England. But Mary, Queen of, Squat, queen of, of Scots, Bloody Mary, Squats, Mary, Queen of Scots, um, I, I turned into a Northeasterner all of a sudden. Mary, Queen of Scots. The, the uh, Bloody Mary, as we know her, um, she, uh, history in England is just a, a big hot mess. It's just a dumpster fire. After Henry VIII, it's just, it's horrible. So uh, go Google this and you can figure out all the details. But Mary, Queen of Scots, sort of uh, invaded the throne, if you will, pushed Lady Jane Grey off after nine days on the throne and had her in prison because Mary, Queen of Scots, was a Catholic and wanted to, to bring the Catholic Church back to bear in England. Well, Lady Jane Grey, imprisoned in the Tower of London, 
was interrogated by one of uh, uh, Bloody Mary's selected priests uh, to, to interrogate her, especially on the doctrine of sola fide. He asked her to, to, to see if she would, if, if uh, Lady Jane Grey would, would recant of her Protestant convictions. He was asking her about justification by faith alone. And this is what Lady Jane Grey said, knowing that just in a few short days she would be beheaded. She said to this priest, I affirm that faith only saves. But it is meet, it is good for a Christian to do good works in token that he follows the steps of the master who is Christ. Yet may we not say that we profit to our salvation. For when we have done all, we are unprofitable servants. And faith only in Christ's blood saves us. Two days after that interview, that interrogation, she was beheaded in the Tower of London. The nine days queen making a stand on the biblical doctrine, the biblical understanding that salvation, that justification with God comes only by faith. Here's the point. True faith in Jesus unites us to him. And in our union to Jesus, in our embrace of Christ, we are declared by God to be righteous. Sins forgiven, guilt removed. But the faith that we express in Jesus, being an active clinging to Christ out of love for him, doesn't result in a life of lawlessness and continued sin, but it results in a a life of working out works of love so that we can say, even as we saw in Ephesians 2, 10 last week, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, not because of, but for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Faith alone justifies, but not faith that is alone. Last week I said, Ashley, ask yourself, you asked the the, the question, how do I know if I've received God's grace? I said, answer these two questions. One, are you trusting Jesus for salvation? And two, are you living, walking daily in repentance? Now, Now, some may think that that second question, am I walking daily in repentance, means that I have to do works to show, to, to show that I'm worthy of the salvation that I've received. No, I say, ask yourself the question, am I walking daily, a life of repentance, daily turning from sin, daily trying to live more like Christ with my focus more on God, not so that I can earn anything, but just as fruit, as evidence of the faith that I've already placed in Jesus. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Christian this morning, you who know Jesus, who have embraced him, who are clinging to him, being justified to God, knowing that you are set right with him by his declaration as you have trusted in Jesus, know this, that your life now becomes a life of joyous service to Jesus. The one who has been truly justified, the Christian who really knows Jesus, who has been justified to God, now no longer has a have-to kind of life, but a get-to kind of life. The person who can Rest in knowing he is right with God doesn't have to go to church to earn credit with God, but gets to attend worship of God every week with other brothers and sisters who love God and are saved by him. The justified Christian doesn't have to do penance to appease an angry God, but she gets to confess her sins and walk in the freedom of repentance. The justified Christian doesn't have to seek a vocation in church ministry as a way to receive God's grace, but gets to glorify God through his work on the factory floor. To be justified, to be set right with God by the simple, humble, lifelong embrace of Jesus is to be freed to live a life of loving God and loving others. Not because we earn anything for it, but simply out of love for God who saved us. 
But more still, we who have been justified by God through faith in Jesus, as we have heard and received the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, we have all the more motivation then to share the gospel. We, we who are justified to God know the promise of Romans 10 verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord this way will be saved. We know the promise of justification because we've trusted in Jesus. And we're freed, we're enabled, we're motivated to then take that same gospel that we've experienced, that we have loved, that we have embraced to those who have yet to hear it. As Paul says later in Romans 10, verses 14 through 15, here he's speaking of his, his brothers, his kinsmen, the Jews who don't yet trust Christ. He says, how, will, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In verse 17, Paul says, so faith, faith which justifies, comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Christian, you who have been justified to God by your faith in Jesus, are your feet beautiful in the sight of God because they carry the gospel to those who are not yet right with God through faith in Jesus? Non-Christian friend, you're here this morning, don't know Christ. We praise God that you're here, you're among friends. We want, we want to help you to know what it is to, to have faith in Jesus, to walk with Jesus. But you who are not yet a follower of Jesus, you're here this morning, know this. You this morning have nothing to prove to God. You have nothing to prove to God. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself worthy of salvation. But know this. The God who made the universe, who knows your heart, who has so loved you that he gave his own righteous son, Jesus, to be the one uh, who would make a way of salvation for you. You who are unworthy, God has done that out of his love and his desire to have a relationship with you. God wants to justify you. If God didn't want to justify anyone, he wouldn't have sent his son to die on the cross, to be raised again from the dead so that we could trust him. Non-Christian friend, God wants you to know him. God wants you to be set right with him this morning. See the depth of God's love for you in Jesus. Trust your life to Jesus today. Embrace Christ. Hold on to him. Trusting him with every fiber of your being. Be justified to God. Be forgiven of your sin this morning. And experience the freedom now to love God and to live a, a life in pursuit of him with no more guilt to atone for, nothing left to prove, only a life like Christ's to live that God, by his grace, has made you free to do. Friend, if you don't know Jesus, trust him today. Be right with God today. Let's pray.